Welcome to the Centre for Independent Studies podcast. What you're about to hear is an episode of Liberalism in Question. This series can be found linked in the description or by searching for Liberalism in Question in your favourite podcasting app. Enjoy the show. I'm Rob Forsyth. This is Liberalism in Question, where we explore challenges, opportunities and, and issues facing liberalism today. My guest is American professor, Emeritus Professor Patrick Parkinson. Patrick's specialty has been in family law, child protection, and issues of religious freedom. For 30 years, Patrick Parkinson was at, at the University of Sydney, and then more recently as head of school at the University of Queensland. He's recently retired and now lives in the, uh, the Apple Isle, down in law system. He's a chair of public, uh, public, uh, 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 public policy think tank in its own way and was until previously chairman of Freedom for Faith, an organisation, as the name suggests, concerned with issues of religious freedom. Patrick, welcome to Liberalism in Question. Thank you, Rob. I start at the beginning. Would you call yourself a classical liberal? I am a conservative, I'm a progressive and a liberal. Altogether, it depends on what issues we are talking about. And I, I mean that because as a conservative, I'm concerned with hastening slowly when it comes to major change. I'm progressive in the sense that I'm concerned with the vulnerable, concerned with needy children, and concerned with improving the social life of the society. And so I, should, I would be on the progressive side of things in that sense. And I'm a liberal in this very important sense, that I believe a society must make room for different values and beliefs and live and let live. And that, for me, is the core of what I mean by a healthy liberalism, that we can agree to differ and find ways to communicate about those differences within our common society. What's the role of the law in providing, in preserving that kind of liberal society? Law has a funny role, actually, because law is not very good at preserving freedom. Not in Australia, any anyway. It, it, it can be good in other countries where there's a constitution which embeds human rights, so America being the classic example, where there's protection for freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and other freedoms. But actually in Australia, where we don't have anything like that, when law gets involved, it constrains freedom because it regulates. So actually, a free society in many ways is one which is reluctant to use law to coerce people about too much. Even though law may be needed to provide the framework of, of uh, proper institutional life, uh, commercial life, without any law, I, I take it, you can't have a free society. No, absolutely. Every, every society of any sophistication has a, a basic body of rules around harm to others, around remedies for harm, both civil and criminal, around contracts, around property ownership, and of course in the political life of the country, uh, the, the, the constitution and other such arrangements. But it doesn't need to have a thousand pages of legislation every, every year um, in order for law to provide that basic framework for the governance. You just said that in Australia, in Australia, at least you said, Patrick, that the law is a constraining rather than providing liberal freedoms. Is it better, would it be better if we change our system to have positive legal constrained freedoms as in bills of rights and so forth? 
I'm coming to the conclusion that we do need need that. Yes, we, we've not needed to before because I think there's been a consensus in our society and in our liberal society around freedoms, but that consensus is rapidly disappearing. And as as an example, um, anti-discrimination laws are growing topsy turvy all over the country. Every time there's a new level government comes in, it reviews the anti-discrimination laws, and they tend to keep expanding and expanding and expanding. And anti-discrimination laws play a very important role, but they also constrain freedom. Uh, they constrain freedom of association, who I can employ, who I can um, work with in, a, in, a, in an org, org, organization. It constrains freedom in all sorts of different ways. So we do need to have some countervailing rights to freedom, which will at least constrain the incursions on freedom from those sorts of um, laws. So you, you give the impression to change your mind about this. Yes. Um, back in 2009, I think it was, Frank Vernon led an inquiry, you may remember it, into whether we should have a Human Rights Act in Australia. And at the time, the churches were largely against it, not entirely, but the, the predominant view was of concern about it. And, and for very good reasons. I, I wrote an article called Christian Concerns about a Charter of Rights. Our major concern was that while all rights are equal, some are more equal than others uh, in the animal farm sense. And whenever you actually get a contest, you find that uh, religious freedom is at the bottom. So we, we, we didn't have confidence, and I still don't have confidence in the human rights bodies in Australia to properly protect religious freedom. But such are the attacks on it now that I've come to think that actually some robust protections for freedom to counterbalance the incursions would be a good thing. When Australia was settled, it brought with it common English or British common law, which had all kinds of freedoms implicit in it, as I understand it, not explicit. And that's part yes, of the problem now. Yes. You see, you see, when you say that the common law protects freedoms, all, it, all you're saying is there is no law against this. Right. Um, I, I, so I have the freedom of owning my own house until a law is passed which allows the police to knock on the door without a search warrant or this or that or the other incursion by the state. So we actually fool ourselves when we say that the common law protects freedoms. It, it only does because um, there are certain ground rules of liberal society which have long been respected in common law countries. Respected but not, not enforced by law, you mean? Exactly. Respected but not protected. So something has changed to make you change your mind about relying on common law, this open field that was once there for us to have freedom in. Yes, yes. And I, I think what's changed my, my, my mind is the um, really quite rapid deterioration in um, respect for religious freedom, respect for freedom of conscience, respect for freedom of speech. Um, I don't wish to be political, but on the left of politics, if you look at the United States, Canada, England, and also Australia and other countries, you will find on the left that whenever they talk about free speech, there's always the word but after it. Oh, yes, we believe in free speech, but. Oh, we believe in academic freedom, but. And that but becomes increasingly lengthy. What's driving that? Do you have any idea? I think... 
Um, we are now in a massive contest for the emergence of a new morality in our society. So for generations... Just, just pause, a massive contest for a new morality in society. That's quite a claim. Well, yes. <laughs> uh, let me explain, though. Yes. For generations, centuries, the, the morality of our society has been largely framed by and influenced by Christian thinking. I'm not saying that Christianity forms the foundation of our laws or any, any such bold claim, but but there was a consensus across society on various moral issues, which was derived and is derived from the Abrahamic faiths and in particular the, the Christian faith. That consensus on uh, moral issues has almost disappeared. And so the question which is emerging is, well, what will the dominant morality be? And that's now expressed in claims for diversity, equity, inclusion, non-discrimination, equality, all these sorts of ideas which are battling against um, classic liberal ideas around freedoms. They sound on the face of it to be good ideas, inclusion, respect, tolerance, no discrimination. But tolerance for whom? Tolerance for, for, for who? And one of the ironies about all of this, as you know well, is that there isn't much tolerance for traditional Christian moral beliefs. And in particular, where they say to other people, well, there, there is a right and a wrong around what you do in the bedroom, what you do in your relationships and so on. Real intolerance for that. And a lot of tolerance for the Muslim community as our, our new migrant and refugee communities but silence on whether they are entitled to retain their values, their beliefs. There's a sense, I guess, that we welcome refugees from Pakistan, Afghanistan, and other such countries, Iran, uh, to, our, to our shores. But the same people who welcome them the most say, leave your values and your beliefs on the boat. They are not welcome um, in this country. So we, we, we have this paradox in the way in which we view a lot of these issues. Do you think society has to have a dominant moral program? Because you wonder if liberalism claims to be pluralist and not answering, as it were, the really major, the odd thing about liberalism, it doesn't answer the very big questions. It leaves that to others. Liberalism is a, in theory, a pluralist um, way of running a society. Yes, liberalism provides a kind of process. Yes, process to... rather than, than goal. Outcome. Um, and when you ask me, well, am I a liberal? In that sense, I absolutely am. Um, but I think that's fading fast. That acceptance that we can be pluralist. Let, let me illustrate this. Um, you may have picked up, in fact, you already know, Rob, that I hail from the UK. I came out to Australia when I was 27, when we first met. Indeed. Yes. And at that time, Governments, uh, it was the Labour government in power at the time, there was the Hawke government, um, developed the first Australian multicultural policy. It was revised again in around 1992, I think. And um, when the Howard government came in, they played with it a little bit. But there was a multiculturalism policy, which was quite important to the understanding of what it meant to be Australian, how we incorporate and value different um, beliefs and traditions and cultural 
background. I haven't heard of a multiculturalism policy for a very long time. And I think that reflects a lack of belief now among some of our elites in the idea of multiculturalism. It's not being said, but you might be right. Well, um, it's 20 years since I've heard people really talking seriously about living and letting live and accepting pluralism. And you see this in the debates about um, same-sex relationships and other LGBT issues. The idea that people might have different views on this is not tolerable. It's not tolerable. And because our ethnic minorities tend to hold those more traditional and conservative be beliefs, whether derived from Islam or um, Vietnamese Catholics, others who come to live in this, this, this country, we have um, a sort of unwillingness to really accept that, the, that we can and should be a free multicultural society in these areas. Wouldn't people say, look, you can keep your beliefs as long as they are kept in private and don't hurt anybody else? That is um, a view of freedom that I am very familiar with because I spent nine months in a communist country uh, in the early 1980s. I, I lived in Bratislava, Czechoslovakia, oh, during a time of very considerable persecution of the church. And I was free to hold my religion in private. I just couldn't. And my friends at church couldn't uh, talk about their faith on, on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday. Um, that's not freedom of, of religion. That's being in the closet. And there's another group in society which is non-complained about having to stay in the closet. Well, let, let me reverse it. Could not people say, listen, it's all very well for you to complain, but it, the, the, foot, the boot was on the other foot 50 years ago. Um, yes. there, there was a sense in which religious organizations were telling other people what to think and what and how to behave. Um, now they've lost their hegemony. They're complaining about it. Yes, and that's what I mean when I said that there's this clash now as to what the dominant reality will 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 be. Undoubtedly, Christianity provided that dominant reality, and I don't doubt um, that it was oppressive to some people, and I'm very sorry about that. I mean, I, I certainly um, would have supported, you know, had I been younger, that have even been alive at the time, the decriminalization of homosexuality, which only occurred um, in the 50s and 60s. Uh, didn't occur in Tasmania until the early 1990s. Mm. Um, so in all sorts of ways, yes, Christianity has provided that dominant reality. Sometimes it's been oppressive to minority groups. But you ask me about liberalism. Well, I think the liberalism we ought to promote is one where um, we have a freedom to live and let live and a respect for that without... Let me ask you, let me ask you about religious freedom. Sorry to interrupt, Pat. Let me ask about religious freedom itself. Um, why should religion or religious practices and religious communities get a special kind of acknowledgement protection? Is it adequate just to say, look, freedom of association, freedom of conscientious belief is adequate? Do we need a special category for religion in thinking about freedom in a civil society? Very possibly not. If the law robustly protected freedom of association freedom of speech and freedom of conscience, then actually freedom of religion will be largely subsumed in, in, in that because part of my freedom of religion is to be able to associate with others who share the same beliefs, to draw the boundaries of who is entitled to become a member of 
my church, who is not, who is allowed to have voting rights, who is not. These are all freedoms of association and freedom of speech. I'm allowed to say whatever I believe from the pulpit. These are basic freedoms. So yes, in a, yes, in a sense, freedom of religion um, is only of real value if it is together with all those other freedoms. And with all those other freedoms, that you may not even, even may not even need it. So association, speech, and freedom of conscience. Mm. I, I, I think I think religion does come to play certainly in terms of anti-discrimination protections that. Um, I shouldn't be sacked from my job uh, because I'm a committed Christian or committed Muslim. And there are specific aspects to, to religion in, in that sense. One, one of the areas is not actually churches, although that could come in under the concern, but I called organizations which are in, both, in two worlds. I'm thinking particularly of Christian schools, mm. which are both public institutions, not necessarily for adherence of the religion who runs the school. In fact, Many of the Christian schools that I know of are homeopathically Christian. <laughs> There's a little touch of it, but they are nonetheless run by Christian. Some of some very intensely, some are very intensely religious. I know that, depending on different kinds. There's a lot of concern with these schools adopting um, strictive practices based on the ethos and and uh, morality of those schools, which is coming under real challenge today. Do you want to comment yes. on that, Patrick Parkinson? Yes. There are really two sorts of public support for um, services. One is where an organization is contracted to deliver a service on behalf of the government. An example would be an employment center where one group has the contract for a particular area. They need to be servicing everybody and um, to, to be, be fully open in that sense. But in education, we have long had a policy in Australia of funding a variety of choices for parents. So if I want to my child to be immersed completely in French, I think in Sydney I could find a school which would immerse my child completely in French. And if I want to send my child to an Islamic school, I ought to have the freedom to do that. And so the liberal approach to education, which I support, is one where we let the market rule. And parents are given choices. Yes, there are fees, more in some schools than others, and they make that de decision about their weekly budgets. But there should be freedom for faith-based schools to take whatever view they, they, they wish and, and then let the market decide, subject, of course, to limitations that we don't abuse children, we don't um, but, but throw gay kids out of schools, those sorts of things. But Patrick, what about when the government's subsidising as you know, in Australia, governments pay for, for education at some degree, all, almost all schools. Doesn't that? That's, that, that's my point. What the, the, the government doesn't just contract one school to deliver the educational services for an area. It funds, in a non-discriminatory way, all schools in a locality who wish to um, form and meet the educational standards. So... I'm not worried by the fact that the government subsidizes. The fact that the fact is there's taxpayers we subsidize all, all sorts of things for other people. But do you think that not gives an obligation? The argument often is given if they're receiving taxpayers' money, they shouldn't be discriminating. We don't want our taxpayers' oh. money paid for discrimination. And this is part of the problem of, of language. I don't think that Christian schools want a right to discriminate. I think they want a right to select. 
fundamentally, the most important freedom is that they should be able to choose the staff they want who will reflect their values and ethos and um, teach children the faith. Now, is that discrimination against non-Christians? Well, in one sense, but it's really a right to select, just like um, the Labour Party is entitled to select people who share the Labour Party's values for staff positions in Labour Party offices. There are all sorts of organisations in society which are formed for a particular purpose and with a particular value base. I wonder whether the problem here is that in a society which is which the elites, I don't think the elites are very secular. In fact, increasingly incomprehending, I think, of religious belief. Yes. Um, the the uh, there's, as there were no under no sympathy for religion, it becomes regarded almost universally as in a negative right. Helped a lot by significant failures and scandals in in some major religious institutions, um, as well as the as well as other parts of the world. Religion being associated with violence is it, is it true that there's not there's not the respect anymore, or less respect, and this is making the whole issue more difficult from your point of view. Very much so. I think there's um, when people talk about the elites, they always talk about a group of which they are not one. Um, I am one of the elites, and I would think you are too. It's just that we might define how dare how ways. dare you how dare you say that. <laughs> But what I think happens in this society, and it happens in other societies as well, is that the entire conversation in the public square is run by about 6% of the population at, that, at the most. And there's a lack of understanding of the values of the other 94%. And that 6% is predominantly secular. That 6% is predominantly uncomprehending of religious faith. And so there lies, I think, the, the problem. If people went out more to ask the 94% what they, what they, they thought, um, they'd have a very different view of, of the world. A good example is the current New South Wales debate on conversion therapy. Go and ask your car mechanic or the dental nurse who supports the dentist when you next go to the dentist what they think about these issues, or your preschool teacher. I can, you know, for if you have a small child, I don't think they're remotely concerned about the issues which are so um, dominant yes. in the Sydney Morning Herald or on the ABC. I, I remember reading um, Stephen D. Smith, the American jurisprudence writer, about um, conscientious objection laws and religious freedom. He said, um, when the state allows somebody to conscientiously object on religious grounds to something, the state is not deciding whether it is or is not a god, or whether the person has or has not received a divine command. That's not the state's job in a liberal society to determine if he, if he or she's right or not. But there's just the state does respect the possibility of an authority greater than the state, if I remember yes. how he puts it. And I think that's a, and I think that's a very interesting issue. This by by respecting religious freedom, the state is not deciding. It's not picking winners or losers in religion, but opening the possibility in human life, in reality, of there being authorities over and above the state. Am I right in thinking if that's if Smith is right, the present world is increasingly discounting the possibility, practical possibility, of an authority outside of our own society and state? 
I would entirely agree with that, but I would say the situation is worse, that I don't think society would any more tolerate as we once did so well that people might hold different beliefs on these things. And we have long allowed for conscientious objection, not just to participating in war, which has been a long, long, long tradition in Western countries, but not having to join a trade union, for, for, for example. These are um, well-protected freedoms in the past, but it's very hard to find champions for those freedoms now. Or perhaps professionals, doctors, being asked to perform certain procedures they conscientiously object to. Yes, yeah, so, so what's happening? Like, hospitals also being free. Please go on, yeah. Sorry, yes. Yeah, so, so I think you look at historic conscientious objection protections and, and abortion is an obvious one. There's, um, there is still a fairly robust protection for rights to not participate in an abortion. But the story of Dr. Mark Hobart in Victoria, who was asked as a GP to, to refer for an abortion for what was a sex selection purpose, and he felt conscientiously he couldn't do that. He was hauled before his disciplinary tribunal for, um, with an inquiry over eight or nine months. Um, protection has been extended to not participating in euthanasia, but it hasn't protected the aged care homes, which provide the home for people who may wish to uh, die in that in that way. And when you look at in vitro fertilization, IVF, reproductive technologies, you'll find there's no conscientious objection for doctors typically there. So as society has moved on with these new technologies and new issues, conscientious objection is not caught up in terms of protection. Often these um, these movement, these, these restrictions on freedom are given in the name of preventing harm. Mm. In fact, it is probably the strongest, other than other than authenticity, being who you really are, whatever that means, prevention of harm is one of the key absolutes in, I think, contemporary discussion. So I think, do you agree, and can you speak as a lawyer to me about some of the problems with defining what harm is? I think that once you define harm as psychological harm, um, and you say that ideas can hurt you, then you see the slippery slope towards restriction on freedom of speech and be and belief. And that's what's 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 happening. When we define harm in this more traditional sense of injury and uh, physical injury, then yes, of course, um, that must be a very high value. But I think the idea of harm has frankly been weaponized. Um, to um, be fired in the battle of, I, of, I, of ideas. What about harm to dignity? This harm to my, to, my, to my acceptance as part of the society? Yes, and so the argument comes like this. If a minority religious group, uh, I won't name any, but you know there are a number of historically um, um, very small religious organizations who hold some very strict beliefs around, say, sexuality or other issues. And if somebody preaches a sermon in a little community hall where that group meets in Western Sydney, that affects the dignity of somebody who lives 200 miles from Melbourne. 
this is the sort of idea that um, is advanced, that any ideas which challenge the way I live are attacks on my dignity. And of course, you only have to, to express it in those terms to see how absurd that claim is and how it really turns into, I don't want to hear those ideas spoken anywhere. And I make that claim because my dignity is under threat if those ideas are spread. So as I understand what you're saying, for there to be a truly liberal society, people have to put up with other people saying things which they don't agree with or even may, in some sense, make them feel um, less okay with themselves. Well, in other words, we have to sort of put it. We have to harden up a bit, become a bit more robust for for just for, because there are going to be these irreconcilable differences. And after forty years in the university, I spent much of my career listening to complete twaddle. <laughs> a unique privilege to those at university, I'm sure, and well and and well paid too. But that was what that's what being in a free society is involved. All sorts of ideas are. Spread some of them silly, some of them of them offensive. It could be rather difficult to be a white male. It could be very difficult to be a Christian in these environments. But that's just the price you pay for being in a free society, where there's an exchange of of, of of ideas. So, without some sense of resilience, there there will not be the protection of freedom. There will not be, and if the law is weaponized as I think it increasingly is, in the battle of ideas, we will all become less free because the weapons which are turned on one group this year will be turned on another group in a decade's time. This leads to my last question. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of freedom in our society? Um, yeah, what's your, not short-term, but your long-term understanding of how things are going to go? I don't. I don't want to sound like a Jeremiah, but I am pessimistic across a lot of different domains. I think we are in the twilight days of Western civilization. Um, and I say that for all sorts of, of reasons. I, I look at what's happening in terms of families and relationships and the impact of that on the mental health of our younger generation, and that's worrying. I look at the level of belief in democracy, which is... Um, declining at a rapid rate amongst younger people. And that's very much associated with loneliness, um, which Hannah Arendt identified as one of the precursors of totalitarianism. And the issues we've just been discussing about lack of respect for, 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 for freedom ought to be a flashing red light for us. Um, but there is a God in heaven. And um, as Christians, we will uh, navigate these dark waters as we have navigated other difficulties in the past. Of course, Patrick Parkinson, if you are a Jeremiah, um, the world, the pro significant prophet of the Jewish scriptures, he was right. Jeremiah was correct. Yes. <laughs> the Babylonians did destroy the temple, although he also pointed to a future beyond disaster. And perhaps maybe that's something. If you are a Jeremiah, let's hope that's true as well. Optimistically, I think things might turn around in about 50 years. I've been speaking to Professor Patrick Parkinson, um, Emeritus Professor of Law from the University of Queensland, but a widely published in a whole range of issues of child protection, family law, and reduced freedom. 
Patrick, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Rob. I'm Rob Forsyth. This is a liberalism in question from the Centre for Independent Studies. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy this content, please consider joining us by becoming a member of CIS. You'll be part of Australia's growing movement towards free markets, individual liberty, cultural freedom and a limited government. Join today at cis.org.au slash membership.